Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Osiris. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters. This is episode 32. I have an awesome guest. Later in this episode, the amazing Rachel Price from Lake Street Dive, and you got to check out her other project, Rachel and Vilray. They have an excellent new record out. We're going to talk about all of that in just a moment. A quick word about my awesome sponsors this season who are helping me make the pod happen. I'm a big fan of Deering Banjos, makers of beautiful, great sounding instruments all made right here in the USA. And in addition to making some excellent banjos, they're also making really high quality finger picks and thumb picks as well. I'm using both myself these days. They sound great, they feel great, and I can't recommend them highly enough. They're actually ProPix. Steering has acquired ProPix, and many professional players were already using ProPix, but they've improved these designs. They're excellent. And if you're an aspiring banjo player or you want to get into banjo, check out Deering because they have by far the best affordable but also quality line of banjos. Those are the good time banjos. So check them out. Tell them I sent you Deering Banjos. Our other sponsor for this episode of the podcast is Meyer Skis. These are super high-quality, high-performance skis that are all made in the USA, which I absolutely love. In fact, not just made in the USA, but made right down the road from my house here in Denver on South Broadway. They've got a great shop, great people I've loved getting to know everyone at Meyer here recently and can't say enough about their boards. I'm on the Leaper this season, designed by Owen Leaper himself. The ski really does it all. We have a duster-branded ski for all the diehards out there. This is a super cool company. Great top sheets, great skis, all made right here in Denver, Colorado. Check them out, Meyer Skis. Inside the Musician's Brain is also brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris is behind all kinds of great podcasts. Make sure you check them out. And we are also brought to you by Americana Vibes. That's the infamous String Dusters record label. Lots of great releases on the way from Americana Vibes, so stay tuned there as well. All right, let's get into it. I've got an amazing guest today on the podcast, Rachel Price. What a badass singer she is. Many of you probably know her from Lake Street Dive. She's also got an excellent duo project called Rachel and Vilray. They have a new record. I love a love song. And this music is just really cool, really unique, really vibey, vintage sound, vintage soul. I love it. And it goes without saying that Lake Street Dive, they've really created something special over the years. So much amazing music. And the proof is in the pudding, of course, because they have found some major success. And I remember thinking when they blew up that it happened so fast, right? There was this perception, as it usually is with bands that take off like that, that it happened out of nowhere. And then later on realizing that they had actually been around for years before things really started to happen. And I took a look 
Bad Self Portraits. That's their their first record with None Such, and I think the one that really put them on the map. That came out in 2014, and that was 10 years after they formed as a band. And Rachel and I get into talking about all of this. But yeah, there was this perception of overnight success and then this realization that they'd been at it a really long time. And there's a great lesson in there. For me, like a great little inspirational nugget that I'm always reminded of in these instances with these examples. And that is the reality that it takes a very long time to get good at something. It takes a lot of commitment, a lot of patience, and just how crucial it is to keep a good perspective intact when you're on a long arcing journey to accomplish anything in your life. So this can be career oriented, it could be a hobby or potentially center around your personal life. Doesn't doesn't matter what it is. What matters is that you stay centered along the way and keep a good perspective on where you're at. Stay committed, stay patient, and don't get too down on yourself even on the days when yeah, you're just thinking to yourself, "Oh, man, I'm I'm no good at this." But you got to remember that that's going to happen and that's when keeping a good perspective, trusting yourself, staying patient, that's when those things are more important than ever. Such bedrock elements of success and things definitely get a little fuzzy when you're in the thick of it, when you're facing adversity, facing really slow progress, wondering why this is taking you so long. And you should expect that you will face adversity because, and this is a big one, progress is never linear. And to go along with that, you know that adversity is coming. You know that's part of the deal. And it's how you react to that, not necessarily how good you are. It's something that defines your progress and I guess ultimately defines you. So yeah, again, perspective. Always realize that adversity is actually an opportunity and how you how you respond is up to you. And that's that's a really critical ingredient in all this. There's there's no shortcuts. You gotta you gotta trust, you gotta stay the course. And you gotta remember to have some fun along the way in there too. You gotta do your thing, find your voice, also very important. So what are some ways to to accomplish this? How do you actually keep a good perspective in the heat of the battle. Well, you, you got to rack up some tools and then you got to practice them. So for example, don't lose yourself in the details. Don't get too concerned with what's going on that day. And in fact, keeping a journal can be actually a great way to tackle this kind of keeping track of where you've been, where you're at, because we remember the bad stuff way more than we remember the positive stuff. And you can very intentionally kind of nurture your trust in yourself along the way. And to that end, it can it can even be a really valuable exercise to like talk to yourself in the third person, pump yourself up. And you also got to just remember to take it easy on yourself. And you got to practice all these things. Just knowing them is really not going to be the cure-all, not going to be the ticket. You got to you got to start somewhere and you just got to get those reps, right? So Zooming back out now to Lake Street Dive and the so-called story of overnight success in the music world versus the reality that it takes most bands, most artists years to get popular. Well, I guess it's reassuring in a way to know that these things actually take time, even for our heroes, for people that we look up to. And it's really interesting because as it pertains to a career in music, that growth it's really unfolding on two different fronts. You got the business thing 
and you're growing your business, it takes consistency with touring, releasing music, all that to gain a foothold. And that takes a lot of time. But just as important, if not more important, is your commitment to your art and to developing your art over time, developing your own voice. Again, it takes time to get good. And with music, first you have to put in all this time learning to play, saying whatever it is you do, and then you invest a whole other huge chunk of time learning to play in front of people. For example, like I know that we, the String Dusters, we would not have been ready for some of the big shows that we do these days coming right out of the gate. We needed that time to develop as individuals, as a band, all of that. And there's some great analogies here, and one of them is to sports. I love the sports analogies. Big fan over here. I get a lot of inspiration from seeing that level of performance. And of course, there's a ton of overlap between music and sports when it comes to that whole performance psychology thing. They say that there's a ton of great golfers, for example, who can shoot a low score, but can they do it in front of the cameras, in front of the crowds? That is a whole other mountain to climb. So inspiring when you see someone really pull it out in the clutch in a big moment. I love that. And I think one of the good pieces of news here is that when you are really into something, the, the commitment to the grind and all that work, that comes pretty naturally. That doesn't mean that it's easy. But if you're like me, you're going to love it all. You're going to love the hard work. You're going to love getting your ass kicked. And you're going to love figuring it all out as well. And a big part of doing that is keeping things in perspective as the whole journey unfolds. Just, just got to trust yourself through all that and know that all that preparation, that's that's what breeds confidence. And yeah, tuning into what you want, finding your voice, and I guess on a deeper level, kind of figuring out who you are, where you want to take your life, how you want it to feel. Those are some really, really important things that we must do as humans to find fulfillment in life. And of course, it's always a lifelong journey. There's no destination in mind and you should expect that challenges are coming your way so you know this falls under the category of lessons that I guess I guess I kind of tell myself oh I wish I'd I'd learned that earlier but hey there's no substitute for experience and there's no time like the present so get out there and get after it and when it comes to the inspiration that lights that fire, I know I'm always so inspired to see the success of a band like Lake Street Dive, but even more inspired by their incredible music. And we're going to hear about that and so much more from their phenomenal lead singer, Rachel Price. Here we go. I remember when five bells would toll and work would end. He and I would meet out on the square. There wasn't anybody anywhere. All right, we're here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and my guest today is a phenomenal singer, and you may know her as a member of the band Lake Street Dive, but she's also got some, some really cool projects on the side, and someone who we played with back in the day, but I haven't seen in a very long time. Rachel Price, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So how are you doing? What's what's going on? I read this awesome recent New York Times piece about you, and I know that you have some some uh, some big things going on in your personal life away from music right now because you're about to be a mom. That's right. Yeah, I'm I'm at home now. I'm I'm pretty much done 
working for a little while and I'm having a baby in, oh, gosh, a couple weeks, hopefully. <laughs> and how are you feeling? I feel good. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm looking forward to a little break from touring and then I'm looking forward to the future and yeah, mostly, mostly excited and also a little exhausted and terrified. Which well, is a cool, cool combo. I gather <laughs> that that comes with the territory. And how long of a break do you have from the road right now? We're going to take about six months off from touring. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Which well, is luxurious, yes. I think, by American standards. <laughs> that, is, that is luxurious. And I'm sure that's, um, that's going to feel good because a little bit of a break, a little bit of a reboot, especially under these circumstances, I'm sure can can really sort of help you out as a human being, and then you can carry that into your music. But I wanted to start out by talking about this new record that you just put out, Rachel and Vilray, I Love a Love Song. And this is a very recent release, right? Just came out, 2023? Yeah, came out in January. This is such a cool sound. For those of you who haven't checked it out, it's a departure for sure from Lake Street Dive, and it's this amazing kind of fusion of old sounds, uh, this, you know, very like vintage direction with incredible vocals and an absolutely killing band on this new record. I was looking at the, the lineup, Larry Golding's on keys, an unbelievable horn section. But tell us a little bit about this project. When did this get going for you and sort of what was the vision behind it? Villary and I started uh, playing songs with each other about seven years ago. And we've been friends since college. We, we were both at the New England Conservatory at the same time, but we didn't really connect musically uh, during that period, uh, possibly because we were both hiding from ourselves and our music school uh, insecurities that we just loved jazz from the 30s and 40s, which maybe wasn't you know, the coolest, the coolest jazz to be exploring when you were at music school. Um, and it wasn't until years later that I went and saw Villery play in a bar in Williamsburg and he was doing, um, you know, he has, he had this really old amp, he had an amp from the thirties that really sort of sounded like a time machine in the sense that as soon as you played guitar through it, you, it just felt like you were listening to something directly from the 30s. And he sang a bunch of uh, sort of obscure songs um, from the 30s. And I sang jazz for a long time. And one of the things that I struggled with with singing jazz and performing it was the pressure of trying to reinterpret well-known songs that everybody knew. Okay. And it was kind of an exhausting process, I felt like, as and, and it felt sort of like that was the lane given to me as a jazz singer was to, you know, be like, do, you know, yeah, sing Blue Moon, but like make it really, 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 really different, um, which I think is cool, but also kind of, yeah, it's sort of tiring to, to take a perfect song and, and constantly have to reinvent it, especially when, you know, people have these relationships to the songs already. So anyway, I hadn't been singing jazz for a long time, and I was so struck by Villary's performance because I was having this this beautiful experience 
listening to music from this time, but it feeling really, really fresh to me because I didn't know the songs. And so I asked Villery after that gig if he would let me do these shows with him at this one bar in Williamsburg that fit about 30 people in it. Uh, and he said yes. <laughs> um, and, and then we sat down and started learning songs from this time. He was showing me them because he's sort of an encyclopedia, um, really of all decades, but really, he's really studied the music from that time. And then by the, maybe the third or the fourth gig, Villery had written an original song. And he, and he was like, I wrote this song for Billie Holiday. Um, and she's not around, so you can sing it. Um, <laughs> Convenient. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, oh, I see. You, you kind of were thinking about how she might have sung it. And it kind of went from there. And he kept writing and writing. Um, and then seven years later, it's like we're has, you know, two records worth of songs and many, many more. And we're just trying to keep the, the sounds of this music alive while giving people an opportunity to connect to it in a fresh way. Yeah. Well, you guys do it so well. And I was struck to learn that these are all originals except for one on this new mm -hmm. record written by Vilray. And you guys have such a phenomenal sound together. And, the, and as I said earlier, this new record has the most unbelievable band. It's like going back in time. So as far as the production process and, and the vision behind that, did you guys conceive of that together? And then sort of how did that go down in the studio where all the arrangements sewed up ahead of time? Or was it coming to life more in real time as you guys were recording? Uh, all of the arrangements were, were done ahead of time and all the horn arrangements were done by our friend Jacob Rex Zimmerman, who we went to NEC with. And he's a, a really amazing traditional jazz um, alto sax and, and clarinetist. And Villery had sort of kept track of him. And as soon as we started this project years ago, he, he knew that Jacob was the person to be doing the arrangements. Um, and so it was just sort of a matter of like when we would get the money or the time to ask him to do it. So he, he did a handful of arrangements for our first record. And then for this one, he did even more. Um, so all that was sort of sewed up ahead of time, which was an essential part of this recording process because we made this record in four days, oh, wow. uh, all in one room together uh, at United Recording Studios in LA. So we, we were sort of doing it the way a record from this time would have been made. Um, just live. Little to no isolate. Just live, yeah, yeah, exactly. Little to no isolation. And which I think is essential to the sound of those records. And that's, that's sort of how you do it. You know, there's, there isn't really any plugins that can really create, um, that sound really. Um, and so we knew for this record that we wanted to do it in a big space because Villery's vision was, um, inspired from certain records that he really loves from the 30s through the 50s. And the sound of those records is very specific. It's a very upfront vocal and a very far behind band. Uh, mm, and the only way okay. to create that distance is to, is to get it in the room. It's almost as if you're sitting at a table with the singer and they're singing the songs very intimately to you and that the band is sort of far behind. Sure. But you, you get a sense of, of space. So 
that's why we chose to do it in LA because we knew the studios, they, they still had the studios like that. Um, and that's why we chose to do it at United. Um, and we had to have everything prearranged because we needed the band to come in and yeah. pretty much nail the songs in two or three takes, mm -hmm. uh, which they did, uh, no, with no problem. Yeah. And one rehearsal. Yeah. Well, it so really, that, it really, it, went. it really comes through and I think you describe it well. The record to me is so intimate and a lot of that is. I think brought to life by the way it's produced. The vocals don't have a lot of reverb, you know, they're just like right mm -hmm. up front. And the band has this very subtle, relaxed sound. And there's so many good tracks on this. I love, it kicks off with this song, Any Little Time, and it's just like, boom, you're right into that vibe. Um, I love that one, Just Me This Year. These are just really, <laughs> really cool, unique songs and a very compelling sound, amazing performances. Cannot recommend this record enough. Um, and it was funny, you know, as I was listening to a bunch of your music, I always say this, one of my favorite things about hosting this podcast is it gives me a great excuse to check in and go a little bit deeper on the music that my guests, my friends, you know, peers, heroes are making. And it's a really fun way to just listen a little bit more deeply. I, you know, I don't know about you, but there aren't enough hours in the day and a lot, so much great music slips by. And I was listening yesterday and I had the Rachel and Vilray stuff on and then I'd switch over to Lake Street Dive and it, it sort of gave me a new appreciation for the sound that you guys have conceived as a band, which covers a lot of ground, but has like this, this awesome edge to it, especially on, on this new record. On, on obviously there's so much great stuff on there. Now this one came out 2021 and, and I wanna wind back before we talk specifically about the record a little bit, just to talk about Lake Street Dive's kind of growth story because you, know, you guys started in Boston in 2004, right? Yep, that's right. And which is interesting because that's when we were all just leaving Boston to move to Nashville to get the string dusters going, but it was a really, fertile musical time there and i just remember there was a lot going on but it was it was some years before you guys really started to get a foothold and get the recognition that you have now obviously now you guys are a really big band reaching tons of fans take us through some of that that origin story of lake street dive and and sort of how things evolved you know the evolution of the sound and then ultimately what you think helped, you know, to really, to get you guys to catch on in the way that you ultimately did? Well, when we met at NEC, we were all jazz students and uh, Mike Olson asked us each individually to be in a band. And he was a, a composition major. And I think at the time was just sort of not, not excited about having to write like just big band arrangements, which I think a lot of the jazz composition majors, that was what their focus was, was just like sit down and write huge ensemble pieces. 
And he really wanted to write songs, which <laughs> hilariously was a novelty uh, within the context of jazz education. <laughs> just, you know, songs, just, just a few chords, right, some lyrics. Right. And <laughs> so we were all like, oh, cool. We're going to get together and like play songs like that you wrote, not like jam on a blues or something. Right. Um, and so... We we uh, we were excited to to do this because that's what we were there for is to you know hang out and meet other musicians and so we just started playing McDuck's tunes, which were a really cool. Uh, um, he just wrote like really interesting weird songs. <laughs> they like sort of had the feel of like confessional singer songwriter, but. Also, like he didn't, he wasn't writing them with like a chordal instrument in mind. Before he didn't play guitar then, so our instrumentation was was trumpet and bass and drums and voice, and it was like a small kit. So we just sounded really strange immediately, <laughs> um, and sort of unusual. And I think that 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 it was in the end. I mean, it was something we absolutely had to set down. Um, but I think for those first few years, it sort of shaped. Um, a sound in us that I think sort of you can sort of still hear the through line of of its of its weirdness and um, and that was you know that was basically it until we sort of realized that we didn't uh, we didn't need to be a weird band to be a cool band I think that was like the music school thing <laughs> where yeah, I was I, like well we have to make sure that people listen to it and they're like huh. <laughs> I think I read somewhere in an interview with you that there was, I forget exactly the term that you guys used to describe it, but it was like free country or something like you had yeah. these. And so what, what is that? <laughs> the, yeah. He presented this concept. This is McDuck, Mike Olson at the first time we, uh, first time we ever got together and played. And the idea was free as in free jazz. So sort of formless. Uh, got you. Avant-garde. Um, but in the context of country, and I think that he was using the genre of country just to simplify the harmonic sort of structure that was sure. available. So he's like, let's take something very simple, um, or, you know, not as, yeah, not as complex as the demands of jazz and, uh, you know, but play it freely. Mm -hmm. And we never, ever did that. I mean, I could probably play you some early recordings where you're like, hmm, maybe this is. Although it's like I'd never sung country music, even though I'm from Nashville. So I couldn't really apply those things to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just, we were just a bunch of weirdos. And just like, it was a beautiful time because, you know, you weren't putting things on your phone and, and recording them immediately. So there was a long gestational period of, strange, unselfconscious music making. Got it. And then eventually things evolved and things started to catch on. I use you guys sometimes as an example of, of how when you hear about a band that's blowing up, that's blown up, that's suddenly capturing everyone's attention, the reality is that they've probably been around for a lot of years before that moment has arrived. And I know, because mm -hmm. that's, that's true for you guys. When did, when did you feel like things really started to move and people were really starting to show up at the shows and there was a buzz around what you guys were doing? Around 2012. Okay. 
Okay. So and, many years after and, the band had formed. And what it what did that feel like? And what you know, what were you guys noticing? And what, if anything, do you feel like really moved the needle and got things to change? It's when we started playing in bars, which was when we started to figure out uh, the joy of of live music making and the joy of of writing songs that were catchy and had, you know, a, a chorus that you could sing back, um, which, you know, we didn't really start out doing that at first. And so it was really just like playing at places like there's, there's a bar called Toad in Cambridge. And oh, I've we played would do Toad many times. There. Yeah. I know <laughs> yeah. that's what Lizard Lounge. I, I've, these are all yeah. the same places we were playing back in the day. Yeah, exactly. So the scene, the sort of bar scene in Boston, um, which has has always had such a great music scene, um, was kind of where we figured out that there was so much joy in, in you know, very pleasing, catchy, th- three and a half minute songs. And uh, I think that process is sort of what caused things to eventually like sort of spark um, with the listeners and a, a big thing that we did was just we recorded an album of, of uh, well, we recorded an EP, so just like six songs of, of cover tunes, mm-hmm. which, you know, we, again, we didn't know anything about the music business. We didn't know that that was going to become a, a YouTube sensation and, and a way for everyone to sort of connect with fans was to record covers. But we did it, and those covers uh, kind of, helped connect us to people, you know, the familiarity of it. I think it sort of led them to our, the original music. But luckily by the time we made that record and, you know, we made like a video of us playing the song, I Want You Back, um, there were as enough of our original stuff, you know, in YouTube form or recordings for people to kind of latch onto as well. And Bad Self Portraits was kind of the first record that really made tracks for you guys right mm-hmm. yeah the, one of the most slamming title tracks of all time on that record it's so good <laughs> yeah and, and a really interesting point that you make about covers because i know it's a debate that we have in our band but has been an undeniable thing for us and for a lot of acts to open the door like you say familiarity mm-hmm. travis always says play something that we know so we can tell how good you are you know and then mm-hmm. the fans through that recognition of a song and its new interpretation are able to kind of latch onto your sound. And then that opens the door to all the original stuff that you're doing. And you guys have so much cool original music and this new record is, is no exception. And I think I must've listened to hush money like 10 times yesterday. That is (laughs) such a good track. And there, and there are a lot of great tracks on this record and it was really interesting reading and listening to some interviews with you and some of your bandmates talking about the process behind this record, because it was a little different than previous records. And I know that you guys sort of mined the well of ideas and did a lot of collaboration and, it seems like you weren't too precious about the songwriting this time around. Would you agree with that? I would. Yes, definitely. And and you had and you had Mike Elizondo producing, which is maybe, you know, not a choice that 
would come immediately to mind. He's produced Eminem, Fiona Apple, you know, Ry Cooter, all these incredible acts. Tell us a little bit about the process as far as what he brought to the table as a producer and how that helped to get the best out of, out of you guys. Well, the, the first thing that he did was he chose the songs and, and we, we collaborated a lot more on the, um, the song pool that we had for, for obviously, um, than we ever had before. So there was a lot of, um, I don't know, there was a lot of just different kind of songs that we didn't really exactly know what direction because one person would start it and one person would finish the song. And um, I think I think we gave him like 35 demos. Oh, wow. To, to listen to. And <laughs> it was a lot, yeah. <laughs> and he was, he was um, really, uh, he, he just had such strong instincts about which ones to do. He just gave us a really clear list. And I remember like sending him over the the demos and thinking to myself, is there is there even a record in these thirty five songs? Like I I couldn't see it yet. And then it sort of emerged like how you're looking at like a you know an an image that has something hidden. Like he chose those twelve songs, and I was like, oh my god, it's a record. Those are those are twelve great songs. Uh, and so that was the first thing that he did. Um, and then when we went into the studio, I, I really feel that the overall thing that he did was just, I feel like we described it often, often as like, oh, it sounds like us in like HD, but not like in, its, in the literal way. Like it just sounded like, ev like everything we wanted to do dialed in perfectly and sort of turned up. Um, and he... And without ever like getting in the way of our sound, um, he was just like very, very supportive and everything, all the choices that he made as far as whatever, the keyboard sound, the synth sound, the, the guitar tone were just very much, in, every time he would dial something in, we'd be like, oh, that's what we've been going for. Like we've tried, we've tried to get this sound before, we just didn't know how to do it. We'll get right back to my interview with Rachel Price after this very short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. 
We've all heard That's cool to hear. So it it was it, it was a combination of being focused on the writing and the songs, but hip hop producers I think are known for their focus on certain sonic elements. The beats I think is a big one. And mm -hmm. it 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 really comes through like the music has so much punch. And like I was saying like the edge to it really comes across. But but it's not, you know, it's not necessarily edgy music, but it just has this this bite to the sound and it's really really mm -hmm. compelling and I I love the production on that. And then Dave Cobb, another great producer, produced your guys record before that, Side Pony, and it sounds like it sounds like they had somewhat of a different approach to producing like whereas Dave Cobb is more of a like let's just do a couple takes and find that fresh magic it sounds like maybe on this latest record obviously you guys dug in and did more takes and and polished things more in the studio that's for yeah for sure yeah Elizondo is is definitely a perfectionist and had no issue with you know there was one there was one take one song where I think Aki probably played the piano part 50 times. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we were all kind of watching in awe at Elizondo's focus to keep, to keep sort of asking in, a, in such a kind way Aki to sort of do what he was looking for. And by the time that it, it, we got it, we understood. But even during the process, we were like, whoa, this is, this is, uh, this is intense. Um, but there, you know, there were things like that, and there were also things that were really, really fast, you know. Um, but yeah, we definitely put a lot of of trust in him on this on this record, which we didn't go into saying like let's just give him the whole thing. We were almost like let's make sure we sort of stay as active in the production um, as possible, which we were. But you know, like for instance, like Elizondo comped my vocals, which I've never had anyone do that for me before like without me in the room. Oh, really? Um, okay. So and and for those yeah. <laughs> of you who don't who don't necessarily know what that means, you know that if you you go in to do a vocal, you do a handful of takes, a handful of passes and then he's actually the one who's picking the best performances and piecing it together to find the most complete track. Yeah, that's right. And, and at first and I said, "Okay, like I'm going to let you do it and I'm going to come in and like I just want you to know that if I'm not happy with it, I don't, then let's not continue this process. And I came in and after the one, the first song we recorded, I did the vocals for, he comped it. And I was like, well, it's a great vocal. And, and then I was like, did you tune anything? And he was like, no, I promise I didn't tune anything. And I was like, all right, I trust you. So is that, is, is that sort of a, a thing for you, a rule for you that you want the vocal to be natural and not use any software to tune it? Yeah. Yeah. I'd prefer not because I know that I can do it. So it's like, if, if you, if you want to use a take that's out of tune, let me look, let me just do it again. Yeah. 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 That's so interesting to just hear a little bit more and get a closer look at like how much trust you need to put in a producer. You know, you work, you mm. spend your whole life conceiving of these sounds of this music, the sound of the band, the songs that you're writing. And then all of a sudden you're just like, in a moment's time, handing it over to someone completely new and letting them have all this input into the project. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah. that's, you know, that's, you know, that's what a great producer does. It seems like, and he, it sounds like 
he almost had to win your guys' trust like on the spot there while the sessions were going down. Yeah. Yeah, I think we came in with a little bit of of not not mis not untrusting, but just wanting to make sure that at this point in our in our, you know, record making path, we were staying as involved as possible because we've really done it all kinds of ways, you know. We I feel like we made three records where we didn't even talk about production. Um I mean, two of them being ones that no one can listen to, but like we weren't even we weren't thinking about production for many, 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 many years as a band. We we weren't talking about like tones and sounds and and things like that. So it's been kind of a slow, uh, a slow thing for us to sort of understand um, the ways in which production um, on a record shapes shapes your sound. Um, and I think we sort of learned from previous records that. There's there's two reasons why it's so important, which is one, it's it's the record that you're making, and that's what everyone's gonna hear. But it's also like it gives you the songs that you're gonna play for the next two years. It shapes the sure. next, you know, it's it shapes your life because you're gonna go on stage and you're gonna play these arrangements of these tunes. Yeah. And of course you can change them from the record, but you know, it's the with obviously the thing that we, I think we were most struck by was that we've played every single song off the record in one show, which we'd never done before, which says something about our connection to the tunes and the arrangements, and we didn't have to change them. So we felt as soon as we walked on stage as ourselves that like this was authentic work. So you, you feel like maybe you hadn't done that previously because some of the songs better kind of represented where you were at as a band and just came out better live than others. And so some kind of yeah. rose to the top, but, but yeah. this, but this I mean, one it's, is it's, yeah. no reservations. You guys play all this stuff and you play it just like the record. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's, that's cool. I know, I know we've confronted that there are songs that kind of die on the vine, but mm -hmm. this is why, this is why people talk about, the importance of an album, I think, is for, for this exact reason that you just described, is it's not just a thing that you do to make money, I think, you know, or, or a piece of your career, which it is those things too, but as an artist, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this, like this is the time when you advance as an artist, you get together once every couple of years and you have this big batch of new songs and it's like, okay, this is the next step of our band and that's that's a, that's a big moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little daunting because you're like, well, we're going to live the experience of writing these songs over and over again um, every night on stage. And if you don't like the songs after a year, that can be kind of a... Or you don't really stand by the way that you presented them on the record and then you feel like you have to play them that way. You know, as you said, like they sort of die on the vine and then there's the ones that you, you know, you played for one cycle of touring after the album comes out and then yeah. and then you're like well i don't i don't want to play this song again yeah so every time you do it it gets a little bit more daunting because you're like oh right this is this is our life this matters <laughs> we got to right get here. this right <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i'd say i'd say you got it right it is such a great album and you guys you know like i said it was really fun just spinning back through the catalog and there are so many so many great moments on all these records and i know that you contributed to a, a couple i love uh, uh lackluster lover which i know i think did you co-write that with bridget is that right or 
I wrote that with Aki. Oh, with Aki. That's right. Okay. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, nobody's stopping you now. I think that's the one that you wrote. Oh, with, yeah. With Bridget. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's just great songs and 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 a great evolution of the sound. And I look forward to to hopefully getting to catch some of these live here in the near future. It's been way too long since we've crossed paths with you guys. I know we're sort of on existing in parallel universes, but um, yeah. But but I'm curious to hear. You know what. What has the last few, you know, the last few years, what has it been like and how, if, if in any ways, has it shaped sort of your guys' trajectory as a, as a band, strategy as a band, you know, with regard to like how much you're touring, how much you're recording? Do you, do you feel like mm-hmm. this, this crazy era of the last, God, it's been, it's been three years now. That's, that's hard to believe. Almost, almost to the day, actually. It's, we're recording this on March 10th and it was March 12th because we were on the road when kind of everything shut down. But, and now, you know, we're sort of emerging from this, but how do you feel like it's changed your guys' trajectory, your guys' strategy as a band? It's changed a lot. Well, one of the, one of the big things that happened really as a, as a result of the pandemic is that Mike Olson, uh, you know, he spent, two years at home with his kids and at the end of it realized that he didn't want to continue touring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That that wasn't the lifestyle for him. And I think it, it did sort of the, the situation of that did sort of force that um, realization in him, which, you know, we were all uh, completely supportive and, 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 you know, wanted him to be as happy as possible, but it, it meant that, we lost a member um, of our band, the, the person who formed the band. Yeah, so, that's a big deal. Um, that was that was a huge yeah. It was a big deal and 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 a and a big shift. And uh, but I do think that it made us all all wonder uh, about touring and how it how it makes us happy and how it doesn't fulfill us. And I think that we are approaching our schedule. And just the type of shows that we take in a much more hands-on way. You know, we're having a lot more say in just the type of venues that we want to play, knowing that it's going to have a certain environment, um, you know, whether it's like a standing room or a seating room and just sort of what kind of shows we want to put on. And then just like how much We, we actually, even though touring has just about resumed to normal, even though we're still living under this um, this present threat of will you or won't you get COVID, um, while you're on tour, which is still happening. But, uh, we're, we're touring a lot less than, than we used to. Um, and, and that's sort of the path that we've, that we're setting ourselves up for is about half as much as we were doing pre pandemic. Oh, wow. And, and just sort of increasing the, the quality of it. Um, so it feels good. I think everyone sort of came back from from it with a like a real appreciation. And I'd say like we're having a lot of fun on tour. And we always had fun on tour, but I feel like we're having more fun. <laughs> That's great to hear and a story that I feel like I hear from from many musicians who are now having a chance to make like a more qualitative assessment of that part of your career that actually 
pays you in, in, in an experiential way. And it's like, we were all able to kind of jump off the hamster wheel and say, okay, well, there's this career piece here. And of course we've got to keep that going, but why are we doing this in the first place? And what is the payback for us? And the mm -hmm. shows, you know, the, the music, and it, it's great that, you know, you guys obviously are fortunate to be in a place where you can make a decision like that. But I think ultimately those are the kind of decisions that really give you longevity and as artists yeah. you know that that's such a huge thing and and i'm happy for you guys and the new lineup obviously you mentioned aki and then james cornelson on guitar and it's like crushing as it always has been you guys you guys haven't missed a beat and um and you know you 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 wouldn't know it if you listen to the recordings and and obviously mcduck huge part of your guys sound and 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 getting you to where you're at but but really cool to see that longevity thing being realized by you guys by a lot of artists out there and and I mentioned earlier it was really cool to read that New York Times piece just a really nice profile of you know I'm also a big breakfast fan over here <laughs> um and I swear to God Rachel I'm not I, I I kid you not so you mentioned this guy Darren Brown in that article uh-huh and yeah. I went down the rabbit hole last night you did what oh, is that what, makes me so happy what is this guy's deal he's <laughs> like he's incredible he's incredible for for you check check him out on YouTube and you, you see for yourself he's a he's a mentalist psychic but it's like what is he do how what is all that? It's the craziest thing ever. I know. I've watched everything possible. We, we, that was like our <laughs> pandemic thing, uh, my husband and I. And then we flew to London in December just to see his show, like for the Whoa. weekend. Um, Tell me about to see that. Him. It was amazing. Uh, he has a show um, in the East End. So it's like, you know, a big production. And uh, it was, I mean, I just think he's, I think he's probably one of the most entertaining and incredible performers I've ever seen. It's like, it doesn't even matter what, if you're interested in mentalism or magic tricks or sleight of hand or anything, he's just electrifying. <laughs> Did he I'm pull thoughts out of him your and head? It's my dream. He, he, he made me think that he pulled thoughts out of my head. Afterwards, we sort of discussed and we were like, how did he do that, that trick? But I mean, yeah, he did a lot of, of hypnosis and mentalism with people in the audience. And afterwards, we spent all of our brain power trying to think how he could have done that and what the trick was. But in the end, I'm, I'm just into it because it's just, it's really, it's very entertaining. <laughs> he, he's, he literally... He sits across the table from someone and he asks them to think things in their head, you know, just just explaining for the uninitiated out there. And then he's sort of in real time like, all right, think of this thing. And 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 he's he's collecting this information at the same time. I mean, did were mm -hmm. you able to figure anything out in terms of how does he do this stuff? No. <laughs> no, there was like one big trick at the end that I was like, oh, like he, he, he did this thing where he sort of hypnotized the entire audience and then made us think that we lost time because he made something happen on the stage that didn't make any sense. It would, it would take me too long to explain. But then afterwards, uh, I was just like, did you lose, did you lose 10 seconds of, of time? And then you looked on the stage and realized that something had happened that it didn't, you know, it was just like one of these things. And, yeah. uh, my husband was like, yeah, but I, I think, I don't know. It was just, 
he's it's he does crazy and incredible incredible stuff um and that's i'm really glad that you watched some darren brown if you need <laughs> any more suggestions i'll tell you all the things to watch <laughs> i couldn't i could well yeah i just like pulled up his youtube channel and i just started going through them one after the next and it was it was like one or two in before i i saw i at first i'm I'm just sort of like, what, what am I seeing here? And then one or two yeah. in, he, he, he did one where he's, you know, where he just, yeah, pulls these thoughts out of, out of people's heads who are sitting across the table from him and, and to see their reaction. It's cool. And it's also, I don't know about you, but I know from the article too, that you're a big reader and it sounds like you glean inspiration from all these different places, but it's like inspiring to see that, you know, just someone yeah. who's really, honed this craft you know whatever it is that whatever it is that he's doing i'm not quite sure but but uh you mm -hmm. can all you can all go check out darren brown's youtube it's it's pretty uh it's pretty spectacular so tell us what um what is what does lake street dive have coming up what do we have to look forward to in, ter in terms of you know future plans because i know you're going to be tied up for a little bit but what is what does that look like for you guys um, well, the next thing would be making a record, which, which we're planning on doing, um, at some point later in the year and, you know, come 2024, then, you know, we'll have a, hopefully have a new record to release and you know how it goes from there. It's, it's the, the, the new cycle begins where you tour the record and, and, and keep going. But I think we're also in just in a, another exciting phase of our songwriting because, um, we're sort of trying to figure out the dynamic now without McDuck's voice. Um, mm. he has, I feel like his songs have played such an important part of, you know, a set. Um, and we, we, uh, we just did some songwriting together, uh, in a cool way that we, we just did like a retreat where we just got together and we, we started from scratch, which we've never, ever done that before. That's like a level of vulnerability that it's taken us um, 16 years to even approach doing that. And we were all, all kind of like, huh, what should we do? And, and we did some cool stuff where, where it was like, we like rolled a, a die and like gave us parameters for chord changes uh, randomly. Whoa. And, <laughs> and then I like all went it. and worked on them and like came back and like shared them with each other and, and things like that. So we're, we're in an, expl a, an exploratory phase of how to create more music with each other. That's cool. Yeah, I, I read that. I think it sounds like through this recent record, you really have been able to realize and focus in on some of the synergy that you guys are able to create in terms of like different people have different strengths. And now that you've embraced the idea of writing together as a band, you're sort of bringing that all together to create a sound that is like the next chapter of Lake Street Dive. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I'm so glad that we got to hang today and I really appreciate your time, Rachel, and I'm a huge fan. And um, thank you so I much, just, Chris. Absolutely. I just want to wish you best of luck with everything that you got coming up and hope to see you out there in the future. And thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Good to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks so much. 
That's a wrap on episode 32 of Inside the Musician's Brain. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Rachel Price, thank you so much for joining me today. It was wonderful to hear what you've been up to, what you are up to. Make sure you all go check out Rachel and Vilray. I love a love song, really a wonderful record. Huge thanks to my sponsors here on Inside the Musician's Brain, Deering, Banjos, and Meyer Skis. And thanks also to Americana Vibes, that's the infamous String Dusters record label, and Osiris Media for helping me make the podcast happen. If you dig what you're hearing, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. You cannot believe how much that helps. Next up in episode 33 of the podcast is the one and only Chris Wood from the Wood Brothers and Medeski Martin and Wood. Absolutely one of my favorite interviews I've ever done chock full of amazing intel that will change your life I swear thank you all so much for listening and I'll see you right here in two weeks when we go back inside the musician's brain Osiris Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast.